This week on the show, we have a little bit of a twist in the moderation section here, but that shouldn't uh, concern you because we have a regular episode, as always, uh, containing authentication vulnerabilities in OpenBSD. NetBSD 9.0 RC1 is available. And we also cover a little how-to about running Freenas on a digital ocean droplet. We show you Nomad BSD 1.3 and what it can do, as well as a report from E2K19 uh, called Nobody Can Hear You Scream. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 330. Happy holidays, all. Uh, recorded for the 25th of December, which is Christmas Eve 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Kreuschling. And Marja Zaborski. Yes, we have a little twist today, uh, uh, because uh, we thought after like 330 episodes of continued recording every week, we should give Alan a little bit of a break. I'm not sure about that, to be honest. <laughs> Let's get him back here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he he's good at what he does. So, um, but this time he's not uh, behind the microphone. He's uh, doing other work, so he couldn't record this episode. And then I thought, yeah, it would be a bit boring doing this whole thing, this whole thing alone. And so I got me some guest uh, moderator here, Marius. Thank you for inv uh, invitation me. No problem. Uh, it would be very interesting to go through the episode here. And uh, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? So um, in my daily work, I'm working at Fudo Security, where I'm a manager of development department. Uh, in my free time, I'm a FreeBSD committer since uh, almost five years already. And my main interest is security, uh, operating systems, and file systems. So I think I can answer a few questions when Alan is outside uh, about ZFS. Um, I didn't mention that I'm from Poland, so my accent may be quite uh, different than you used to. <laughs> People probably won't know that Alan is gone when you answer the ZFS questions, and that's probably what most of us uh, listeners care about. <laughs> um, <laughs> the nice thing also is that Alan can now listen to a BSD Now episode without knowing what's in the episode. So that's a new thing. You know what? I'm wondering if Alan ever listened to the, any episode, you know, because some people don't <laughs> like to listen to their own voice. Yeah, that could be. Um, but I guess Alan is busy enough to do other things in the meantime. But <laughs> we can ask him when he's back. You should. You should ask him. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So let's get right into the episode. Uh, we have headlines, of course. Uh, the first one is um, maybe not such a good one, but nevertheless important. Authentication vulnerabilities in OpenBSD. Yes, this was quite exciting vulnerability recently discovered in OpenBSD. Uh, it's quite scary because it's remotely ex uh, exploitable uh, in some of the applications that you may know, like SMTPD, LWD, or Radius. As there are some applications that may be also uh, vulnerable, but we uh, have to go case by case to, to analyze that. So we have a, uh, a CVE uh, for this um, vulnerability, and 
that goes like that. We discovered an authentication bypass vulnerability in OpenBSD authentication systems. This vulnerability is remotely exploitable in SMTPT, LWD, and RADIUSD, but its real-world impact should be studied on a case-by-case basis. For example, SSHD is not exploitable thanks to its defense-in-depth mechanism. So uh, this is quite exciting because I don't remember many remote exploitable bugs on OpenBSD. Uh, so let's go to the analyze of this bug. So uh, OpenBSD uses BSD authentication, which is made up of a variety of authentication styles. The authentication styles correct, uh, currently provide are PassWD, which is a standard password and uh, password uh, verification method, which is uh, basically verifying the password in master pass VD file. Uh, we have also others like SKI or YubiKey. So for any given style, the program login style is used to perform the authentications. So when you are you want to authenticate, you run the login style uh, command, and there is uh, options to provide a service, which is basically the uh, uh, style that you want to authenticate. So for example, if you want to use a passwd uh, service, then you just provide the w uh, the dash s passwd uh, and your username to authenticate. This is the first piece of the puzzle. If an attacker specify a username of the form dash option, then can influence the behavior of the authentication program in an unexpected ways. This is already a bug, but it's not exploitable. I mean, you know, if you run this command and you can manipulate what uh, what style you can use, this is this is a bug, but it's not exploitable. If user don't support such uh, style, you just say, okay, the, uh, this user doesn't support that, so the authentication failed, everything is fine. But there is uh, another application, which is basically the login pass WD, which is uh, used to authenticate the password authentication type. So uh, in this ap- uh, applications, when uh, the service argument specify which protocol to use, uh, we have uh, three different protocols, login, challenge, and response. And the challenge protocol is silently ignored, but while report successful, uh, as password style authentication is not challenge response based. This is the second piece of the puzzle. If an attacker specifies the username dash s challenge, then the authentication is automatically successful and therefore bypassed. So here we have a standard uh, misinterpreting between the option and the username. So attacker can provide the additional option to the uh, login style um, command and uh, this uh, this additional option will be passed to the login pass WD and when this option will be uh, dash s challenge then uh, user will be automatically uh, uh, authenticate because every challenge authentication through login pass WD will be successful in this um, CVA we have like six different, uh, five different uh, case studies. Uh, the simplest one to understand is basically the LDAPD. So when you are doing the LDAP search command, which is basically ask the LDAP database about some queries, instead of providing the username, you provide the username dash s challenge. 
and the authentication will automatically success. Yes, this is a big problem. Uh, I believe there, like I mentioned before, there wasn't many remote uh, authentication errors in, in uh, OpenBSD. It mostly depends on the application which you are using, but unfortunately this was in the uh, base authentication library which was used in the open, uh, by the OpenBSD guys. Um, there is also quite interesting analyze that the SSHD wasn't uh, vulnerable to this uh, bug, uh, basically because uh, during the connection, the connection hangs because SSHD was waiting for login pass WD to send a challenge while login pass WD waits for SSHD to send a response. So they was just deadlocking between themselves. <laughs> waiting for each other. Waiting for each other, yes. <laughs> okay. So there are three, uh, three more uh, bugs for the authentication. Um, this is the most important because it's uh, remotely execut- uh, exploitable. Uh, the rest of them was uh, privileged escalations. Uh, some f- uh, one of them was, for example, for xlog, and there was just uh, insufficient um, set group ID check. So you know you could just uh, get additional group uh, through uh, as a user. So there there was exploitable, but was not so critical that this one. Uh, the good news for OpenBSD is that they uh, fix all the. Uh, those bugs in 40 hours after the initial contact. So, you know, you can see in different projects that it took months or, you know, even uh, years to, to fix some bugs and they did it in 40 hours. So this is quite, quite impressive. Yeah, that sounds like OpenBSD. Yes, they, they, they get uh, security quite, quite serious. Oh, yeah. Uh, so people can rest easier this way. So they just need to apply the latest patches for those uh, vulnerabilities? They are all patched, I believe, for 6.5, because I believe OpenBSD is... And 6.4, because OpenBSD is supporting only two latest versions, if I remember correctly. Mm. So, yes, please update your uh, OpenBSD boxes and uh, check if your um, services that you provide to the internet are, are secure and aren't vulnerable in, uh, for this for this bug. Interesting thing, I also look into the code for, uh, for uh, this bug and the patch for uh, this bug was uh, more or likely to separate the arguments of the functions with the username uh, for the uh, command. So uh, instead of mixing the uh, arguments and username, you have to provide double dashes now to provide the username uh, to which you want to log in. So now if you getting uh, if the command is sent, uh, if the username is received by, by some socket or whatever, then always it's uh, put it after the uh, two dashes, which uh, means that uh, there shouldn't be any other options there. Okay, understand, yeah. Ah, see, with your security background, that's giving us much more information than we would usually get. Uh-huh. I'm I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't pick this uh, particular one, uh, but yeah, it came up in our stream of news that we wanted to cover, so uh, that fits well to your uh, background. To be honest, uh, you know, the OpenBSD, uh, this bug in OpenBSD was 
quite loud uh, about it in the security environment because you know you don't see often such such uh, bugs, especially in OpenPSD. But I guess they, uh, since they fixed that already, they can now rest easy, and as long as people patch their boxes, that should also be fine. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, here's the next item. We have the first release candidate for NetBSD 9.0 available. Oh. And they list a couple of interesting things uh, that they have. So the message starts, uh, since the start of the release process, four months ago, a lot of improvements went into the branch. More than 500 pull-ups were processed. So that's uh, already uh, quite big a number. Uh, this includes USB Net, which is a common framework for USB Ethernet drivers, uh, ARCH64 stability enhancements, and lots of new hardware support, always good for NetBSD, uh, installer sysinst fixes, and changes to the NVMM, the hardware virtualization interface. I'm always uh, quite surprised how many uh, architectures is uh, supported by, by NetBSD. That's quite a challenge to, you know, uh, test everything on those uh, so many ar different architectures. And yeah, that's the impressive thing about NetBSD so that they have this wide uh, adoption. Um, so they also write, we hope this will lead to the, in capitals or in bold, best NetBSD release ever, uh, only to be topped by NetBSD 10 next year. Um, so they list a couple highlights here for the release. Um, the first item is support for ARM ARCH64, which is the 64-bit ARM V8-A machines. Uh, they include the ARM server-ready compliant machines, which is SBBR plus SBSA. Uh, they also have enhanced hardware support for ARM V7-A, so that's good for the uh, already existing ones. And the updated GPU drivers are there as well uh, with support for Intel KB Lake, so those are supported as well. They also have enhanced virtualization support and uh, clarify that a little bit with support for advanced uh, accelerated virtualization, which is NVMM. In previous episodes, we covered this a couple of times, but NVMM is an interesting uh, hypervisor. Yes, it, it is. I never, I don't think I have uh, before looking to it, uh, but uh, yes, it's it's look quite uh, interesting, especially, I believe there was few... Um, presentations about it during the BeehiveCon uh, this year, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, they don't only cover Beehive itself, but also the other hypervisors that are out there in the BSD world. And uh, to be honest, the very interesting thing is that they updated ZFS to the new, I guess, to the newest version. So, you know, you can run uh, NetBSD, uh, ZFS on NetBSD. And uh, this is quite exciting because really there are uh, now many operating systems and the major operating system that started to use ZFS as, you know, they maybe base uh, file system. Oh, yeah. And uh, then you can import pools and uh, send your snapshots back and forth. So that's a good way to have, I mean, ZFS on all these architectures. I mean, maybe, maybe not all of them, but these all these architectures that NetBSD supports that were not originally ported for ZFS, 
that's that's exciting. Yes, I just wonder, you know, how uh, much uh, RAM would need such uh, architecture to support ZFS in you know efficient way. Because uh, I can imagine that uh, it's hard to imagine that some small devices, really small devices, will be able to run ZFS with you know few few megabytes of of RAM. But it's very interesting to to see that uh, they also have some more security stuff. They also support uh, kernel ASLR. They have several kernel sanitizers, KLeak, KSAN, and QBSAN, and uh, also support for userland sanitizers, as well as an. Uh, they did an audit of the network stack, which is interesting. So uh, that oh, we covered that a couple episodes ago um, as part of Google Summer of Code. And they also have many improvements in their NPF, their own NetBSD PF implementation. So that's interesting to look at. Uh, they also have some rework error handling and native command queuing support in the SADA subsystem. Uh, but again, uh, everyone, this is not the final release candidate. This is still, uh, still RC1. It's close, but it's not the final release, and we'll probably cover this in a future episode once it's out. But they write uh, at the bottom here that please help out by testing 9.0 RC1 if you have some time. Uh, we love and any and all feedback. Report problems through the usual channels, uh, like submit a PR or write to the appropriate list. And more general feedback is welcome. Please mail the Relang team and your input will help them to put the finishing touches on what promises to be a great release. Sounds like very exciting release for them, really. A lot of new features. I'm, I'm really excited to see all the security uh, features that they provided, especially uh, the support for kernel address sanitization. I believe they uh, work uh, really hard to fuzz the kernel. So that w- this is quite exciting work. Yes, so um, they did a couple of work over the summer on um, as part of Google Summer of Code to uh, fuss certain things and make sure that the sanitizers uh, find the right parts and not the wrong parts. And uh, that in, in made this, the code more stable, uh, secure in some cases. And I guess that, that shines really when you have a big release coming up uh, when most of the things just work in the code and are not running into some weird error cases that are only touched if you go in this if statement or that other branch. So, that's cool. So, in our news roundup here, we have uh, found a tutorial for you if if you have some time uh, during the holidays uh, to do some... uh, setup work maybe here's a how-to that we found it's a bit old already um, but maybe it's uh, still valid or interesting to you running freenas on a digital ocean droplet it sounds like a perfect tutorial for a backup server based on freenas and so um, it's fairly straightforward so they have a little uh, text at the beginning Uh, zfs is awesome well we all know that Um, (laughs) freebsd even more so uh, FreeNAS is the battle-tested, enterprise-ready, yet home-user-friendly, software-defined storage solution which is cooler than Deep Space, based on FreeBSD and makes heavy use of ZFS. Their words. The, the description, the enterprise-ready, yet home-user-friendly, uh, perfect description about the uh, FreeNAS. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is what a day... Um, use here for just about any storage-related task. And uh, yeah, once you are familiar with the UI or have used it before, then it should be fairly familiar. Uh, They can go on, they write, and on and on about what makes it great. But if you're here reading this tutorial, you probably know all that already and can skip ahead. 
So um, their concrete use case was they needed an offsite free NAS setup to replicate things to, to run some things, to do some stuff. Basically, their privately owned, tightly controlled NAS appliance in the cloud. So once they control from top to bottom and with support for whatever crazy thing they're trying to do, but since they're using DigitalOcean already as the main VPS provider, it seemed logical to run free NAS there. However, you can't. Well, while DigitalOcean supports many, many distros in pre-setup applications like OpenVPN, uh, FreeNAS isn't a supported feature, at least not in the traditional way. So this is a bit of a hackish thing, but it works. Uh, so just to clarify, there are VPS providers which offer custom ISO installations. One they particularly like is Vulture, however. Uh, they wanted to do so on a DigitalOcean droplet just because. Yeah, it's a good experiment. Uh, so uh, here's a little overview of what they're going through. Um, the first thing is, of course, set up a FreeBSD-based droplet. Uh, they'll re-image that, uh, the boot blocks with the FreeNAS ISOs so that they know, oh, I don't need to load FreeBSD, but I need to load the FreeNAS parts. Then the second thing is that they install FreeNAS on the second block device. That becomes important uh, a little further down the road. And the third thing is, once done, they're going to do the old switcheroo. They're switching to re-image their original boot block device using the now FreeNAS installed second block device. So that's how they do the trick. Uh, I believe before the uh, work was, which was done uh, by uh, Colin, you also needed to do some tricks to run the FreeBSD on uh, uh, AWS, something like that. You know, like boot from a different machine and try to uh, install uh, FreeBSD there. Yeah, Colin did a lot of work there with uh, AWS and Amazon to make that work and make FreeBSD available this way. And I think you can do pretty much the same there as well. So this is not limited to just this cloud provider. Uh, so um, since most of this stuff is graphical, we basically just go through a description here because, yeah, you can't see what we're looking at. But if you go through um, our show notes and click on the link, you will find all the instructions there. So the first thing is that they create a FreeBSD droplet. It doesn't have to be big. Uh, the one they use here is a $5 one gigabyte RAM one at the time of this writing, at least. I guess they dropped their prices a little bit by now. So this is just a simple uh, VM. It doesn't uh, need to be a big one to get started. Uh, they write in production, you want at least 8 gigabytes of RAM uh, for ZFS and some of the uh, things going on in the OS, but uh, it's not too big of a requirement. So um, when you do that, you add a new block storage device uh, with the installation target, so that matches the size of the droplet boot device, so in this case, 25 gigabytes. Uh, this is a throwaway device, so... Um, this is important to know. And once you're done, you get rid of it and um, don't think about it anymore. Uh, so you spin up your droplet and log in and then uh, provide the FreeNAS ISO uh, installation to it that you downloaded already with curl or do it directly in the machine. Uh, then you become root there and turn off the swap device. Uh, Geo will prevent you from uh, thrashing your boot blocks there. So you kind of have to uh, say to it, yes, I know what I'm doing here. So there's a sysctl to enable you to do that. And then you DD the installation ISO to the def, in this case, VTBD0. Uh, this is the main uh, boot block device. And once done, you reboot that machine. And ooh, magic, magic, part two happens because then you can start the FreeNAS installation on the second boot device. And so that runs through the installer that you probably have seen many times already. And um, yeah, then the installation process uh, starts a little down the road. 
you uh, get some progress bars to see that it's finished. And once that is done, uh, you can then, of course, first tap yourself on the shoulder to this part uh, because you can now go to the next one, which is the third. Um, you re-image now the boot block device using the FreeNAS installed block device. Uh, that sounds scary and difficult, but it's not. It's all quite simple from here. They're going to do the DD to our boot device. So that's DevVTBD0. With the block device, they're used as the FreeNAS target device, in this case, uh, DevDA0. Uh, but first, we need to boot into something that we can DD from, because we're kind of in the between the chairs here. So uh, to do that, you head over to the DigitalOcean control panel and shut down your droplet. And then uh, under the destroy menu button, be careful there, choose to rebuild your droplet with the same base you used originally and then boot into your droplet. And you can now verify that devda0 still exists. Just do an ls slash dev. And then you can do the exact same steps you did in part one, becoming root, turning off swap and relaxing uh, geom's uh, strict warnings here. And then you can just do dd devda0 onto devvtbd0. That's, that's a neat trick. And so next time you boot this thing, it will come up with the right uh, FreeNAS. And then, ta-da, it gives you uh, the first installation steps, like setting up the um, network interface and some of the GUI setup stuff is followed afterwards. There was a lot of work to set up it, to be honest. Uh... Yes, uh, but um, in those days when this tutorial was written, it was necessary. Maybe today it's much easier. Um, but I think it's important that people know about this uh, switch uh, install into the second boot device or a second uh, disk device and then just switch around once that is done. Yes, I, I would love to see like DigitalOcean or any other provider provide besides FreeBSD, FreeBSD also installation for FreeNAS like out of the box. That would be something uh, very interesting. Yep. And then you have like your own uh, NAS in the uh, in the wild or in the cloud and you can back up your stuff there if you're on the road or just get to your files when you need to uh, but make sure to uh, definitely secure this box enough so that no one else can get to those files. Do you use FreeNAS for uh, backupping systems? Uh, so I have a combination of uh, Nextcloud instance uh, a hosted one which which was offered to me a couple years ago with like, oh, unlimited lifetime support. And I was like, yeah, yeah, in a couple hours, you will shut down before uh, before I know it. But it's been running fine so far. They had a, a couple um, mess, messy things in the, in the past. Uh, for example, at once, they once overwrote every file, no matter what type it was, with some kind of XML header. So even binary, even binary files, and it's like, why did you do that? And did they have any backup system or something like that to restore the data? Yeah, they had that, and they also provided a Z script that you could run to remove those like twenty-four characters of uh, XML they put into your files, and so that restored the file as they were before. It was on user data, or also like every binary, or <laughs> every binary, every, every every image, every every PDF, every whatever you had, or every text file. That's how I found out what the how long that uh, string was, um, was there. I mean, the text files can still be read, but the other files are just garbled. And then I said, okay, let's write a little set script to remove this stuff. And the, the, maybe a year after they had like, oh, one of our, or your instance server crashed and they had to reboot this thing. And then since they were running on Linux, they had to do the whole FSCK cycle for like a 60 terabyte 
uh, volume. And after a couple of days, they had like provided uh, updates, instructions for, oh, we're now in stage three of the FSCK, uh, stage three of five, and they're currently checking, I don't know, iNotes or whatever. And we're like, seriously, use ZFS. Exactly. This was my first like <laughs> thing. On, why don't you use ZFS? It's, it's so... It's perfect for that. Just forget about FSK. Yeah. So they offered in the meantime that they would restore your data to another instance. But the, even that restore took days because people had so many files in their Nextcloud instances. Uh, that was just funny. And uh, they apologized and gave me some extra credit. But um, I, I make sure that I have a separate backup for these kinds of uh, cases. You, you should always have additional backup. <laughs> like. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Learned that the hard way. Do you use FreeNAS at home? To be honest, I'm you know hardcore FreeBSD user, so I'm using uh, FreeBSD as a, my uh, NAS server. So I configured everything from the scratch, you know, like iSCSI or, or Samba or whatever. And so yeah, basically, I I configured everything on on FreeBSD. Yeah, it's uh, if you know what you're doing, then it's fairly easy to uh, to do these things and add the services that you need. I, I'm not sure if I know what i was doing but i'm i lo- learn a lot during the time so yeah so uh, since i'm teaching my unix class and i have a little section on zfs there a couple of weeks after that section people a couple of students came to me hey we did our storage servers at home now with zfs and i'm like great excellent yeah it's cool we didn't know that they could do all these things and i said see that's why i t- teach it to you so that's really great to see that uh, they're now like everyone has files they don't want to lose anymore and it just keeps growing. And if you don't put it on the right file system and, and volume manager, then you can get in trouble down the road after a couple of years. And then it's a lot of stuff to back up. We are also running a Polish BSD user group. Uh, you mentioned a few times already it on the show. And uh, the ZFS topic is always uh, very trendy. Like uh, a lot of people are interested in what is happening. And, you know, ZFS is now really, really uh, exciting technology for, for uh, many people. Oh, yes. Yeah. And it's people like um, they don't normally are the sysadmin types, but they kind of understand, okay, this is a pool. This is a, uh, like a data set and what it can, how you can configure those. So it's still very approachable and understandable once you get to the basics. Uh, it's taking some time to understand because the idea of ZFS is totally different than normal file system and volume manager. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, back to the show. Um, we also have in the news a new release of Nomad BSD. Uh, so many people are like, "What's that?" I haven't heard about this too much. Uh, yeah, there, that's a new system on the block compared to the other ones, um, but it's nevertheless ex- interesting. So from the website here, uh, the about section tells us that Nomad BSD is a persistent live system for USB flash drives based on FreeBSD. Uh, together with automatic hardware detection and setup, it is configured to be used as a desktop system that works out of the box, but can also be used for data recovery, for educational purposes, or to test FreeBSD's hardware compatibility. Wow, that sounds exciting. Yeah, so this is what you would take to the computer store and check whether FreeBSD runs co- correctly on this box. Oh, I, I, I didn't think about that, but this is a perfect use case. Yeah. So, and since they do all the audio or the hardware detection, you can definitely see that you, um, oh, that the screen resolution is there, you can suspend and uh, sound is working, whatever you want. Uh, So in their release, uh, they quote in the release notes, what's new? 
um, they say that uh, the base system has been changed from uh, FreeBSD 12.0 to 12.1 release uh, patch level 1. So they're chasing that. And, uh, oh, due to a deadlock problem, FreeBSD's UnionFS has been replaced by UnionFS-Fuse. So that's uh, file systems in user space. So they use that. Uh, the GPT layout has been changed to MBR. This prevents li problems with Lenovo systems that refuse to boot from GPT if the Lenovo fix uh, is not set and systems that hang on boot if Lenovo fix is set. Ah, yes, you have a Lenovo, right? Yes, I have a ThinkPad uh, X1. Uh, but to be honest, I'm booting from GPT and I didn't need a Lenovo fix for, for that uh, laptop. Oh, good. So that's uh, for the people who still need that one, they can use uh, Nomad BSD as well. Um, oh, support for ZFS installation has been added to the Nomad BSD installer. Excellent. So people can run that. Um, the RC script for setting up the network interfaces has been fixed and improved. Okay, also good. And support for setting the country code for the uh, wireless device is also been added. Oh, yes, people in different regulatory areas need to set that. The next item they have is the auto configuration for running in VirtualBox has been added. So yeah, perfect test case. Oh, what's this Nomad BSD? Let's run it in a VirtualBox and see what it does. Yes, I, I look a little bit into the code of Nomad BSD uh, just before the show, and I look what type of detection that was. And basically, they are checking the SMBOs on the uh, of the machine. So if it's returned the virtual box, they, they are loading the additional drivers for, for virtual box. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's clever. Figure out what environment you're running in and then act accordingly. Yes, it's very, it's very useful those days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then a check uh, for the default display has been added to the graphics configuration scripts. Uh, this fixes problems where users with Optimus have their NVIDIA cards disabled and use the integrated graphics chip instead. Okay, so they can use that. Oh, and by the way, the NVIDIA driver version 4.4.0 has been added. So that's a bit more fresh on the NVIDIA driver side. And they have a Nomad BSD-DM config, which is a QT tool for selecting the display manager theme and setting the default user and auto login has been added. Oh, cool. That sounds helpful. And they also have a script Nomad BSD-add user, which is a QT tool for added pre-configured user accounts to the system has also been added. Then they added check translations. So that's also good for people in that country or the people speaking that language. And uh, Nomad BSD, oh, the Nomad BSD logo designed by Ian Grindley has been changed. So that's a fresh logo as well. Uh, they also support localized error messages and localizing the password prompts. Uh, okay, so that people can read what's it, what's in Polish password. Hasło. <laughs> ah, see, that, that's our educational value that we provide here. <laughs> how, how is it in uh, Germany? Uh, it's the same, but with a T at the end. So it's password. Oh, okay. Not much difference. <laughs> D or does? Uh, password? Yeah. Just password. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Oh, those oh, computer terms sometimes don't have a proper daddy does uh, article. Uh, but sometimes we make up the thing that sounds much better than the other ones. So, yeah, it's probably das password. We should start another, you know, as a podcast about languages only. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, I th I think people would love that. Like, uh, what's this term in your language? <laughs> So um, they added some templates for starting other desktop environments uh, to X init RC. Okay, so people don't uh, have to stick with one. They can select between them. 
and uh, some extra scripts that help users to configure a multi-head system. Ah, cool. So you have multiple uh, displays. And ah, important, the XORD driver for newer Intel GPUs has been changed from Intel to the mode setting one. And uh, PROC has been added to FSTAP, so that is uh, mounted already when the system starts. And some smaller issues uh, were also fixed. Oh, they added some extra uh, support for multiple keyboard layouts. Also good if you want to test those, especially if you're in a computer store and like want to check whether all the uh, keys are on your keyboard. Uh, then they have uh, removed two things, uh, the pale moon uh, in the WWW www area uh, from the ports has been removed and Mail Thunderbird has also been removed and they added Audio Audacity which we're using to record this episode by the way and uh, Deskutil slash Orage, never heard about that one I also didn't heard about that but I'm kind of surprised that they removed Thunderbird, it's kind of you know, everybody used Thunderbird those days, right? Maybe they have a a space issue, but uh, it's fairly small. But maybe they found a better email client. Maybe. Uh, they have Password Manager, FPM2 changed uh, and re- replaced that by KeyPassXC. Uh, mail SillFeed has been replaced. Ah, by Mail slash Clause Mail. Maybe that's the, the Clause uh, Mail client that they're using. And they added a simple screen recorder from the multimedia section as well. So yeah, that sounds like a fine release. I will definitely give the ISO a go on a uh, on a system that can hopefully boot this thing. I'm I'm fairly sure it does. You know, you can just use it on the virtual box just to test it and see how it looks. Uh, you sh- should visit the Noman BSD website. Uh, it looks very beautiful. If you go to the screenshot sections, there are really nice. Uh, desktop environments just uh, i believe it's just out of the box how how it looks so it's pretty nice yeah i learned that the hardware like setting everything up like notifications and taskbar and all these things that you kind of take for granted nowadays they've done that already and so i i still didn't configure that you know <laughs> I, I i'm using wmi i so it's styling manager it's quite old but you know i'm very used to it Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I still need to learn a little bit more about tiling window managers. Um, yeah, maybe next time we'll meet, I'll, we'll, we'll sit together in the corner and uh, you show me that stuff. When you, when you learn uh, a lot of shortcuts, the, the productivity is just uh, rock sky. Ah, so you never have to touch the mouse again? Yeah, basically. Only when you try to you know, uh, visit some websites. Ah, yeah, well, that's... yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, that was uh, Nomad BSD, and we also have uh, in this segment a hackathon report from the E2K19. I believe this is a Open BSD hackathon, right? Uh, it's mm-hmm. I could, uh, I, uh, E2K19 hackathon, it's called, and this. Uh, this post was written by uh, Claudio Jaker, who was working on X509 in OpenBSD. So, after two years, uh, it was once again time to pack skis and uh, snowshoes, put a satellite dish onto a sledge, and hike through the snowy Rockies to the Egg Lakes Hut. Ah, I remember. Yeah, the OpenVisty folks did that a couple of years ago, and so they just repeat that experience. Oh, okay. Uh, I I, uh, didn't know that they already been there. Or at least a couple of them were. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So I didn't really have much of a plan what I want to work on, but there were a few things I wanted to look into. 
One of them was RPKI client and the fact that I was so incredibly slow. Since Bob Beck was around, I started to ask him innocent X509 questions, as if there are innocent X509 questions, mainly about the abuse of the X509 store in RPKI client. Pretty soon, it was clear that RPKA client did it all wrong, and most of the X509 verification had to be rewritten. Instead of only storing the root certificates in the store and passing the intermediate certs as a chain to the verification function, RPKA client threw everything into it. The X509 store is just not built for such an abuse, and so it was no wonder that it was so slow. Lucky me, I pulled Benno with me into the dark hole of Leap Crypto code. He managed to build up an initial div to pass the chain as a stack of X509, and together we managed to get it working. A big thanks to the uh, goes to Ingo, who documented most of the functions we had to use. Have a look at stack of and escape pop free to understand why Benno and I slowly turned crazy. (laughs) Our next challenge was to only load the necessary certificates, revocations, list into the X509 store CTX. While doing those changes, it becomes obvious that some of the data structures needed to better lookups functions. Lookup certificates was done using a linear lookup. And so we replaced the internal certificate and CRL tables with red block uh, trees for fast lookups. Durat also joined the RPK client commit fest and changed the output code to use rename so that the files are replaced in atomic operations. Thanks to that, RPK client can now be safely run from cron. Cool. I did not plan to spend most of my weekend hacking on RPK client. I'm I'm really not surprised about that. The X509 code must be horrible, really horrible. (laughs) Uh, But in the end, I'm happy that I did. And the result is fairly impressive. Working with Leap Crypto code and especially X509 was less than pleasant. I'm really not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Our screams of agony died away in the snowy, rocky mountains and made Bob deep deep dive into UVM with a smile since he knew that Benno and I had it worse. <laughs> okay. In case you wondered, that, uh, wondered, thanks to all changes at A2K19 Hackathon, RPK client improved from over 20 minutes runtime to validate all VPRs to roughly one minute uh, to do the same job. A factor 20 improvement. Um, he would like to thanks to Tio, Bob, and Howie to make this possible. That's a successful one. Yeah, getting uh, uh, getting this um, improvement from uh, 20 minutes to, to one minute, that sounds like really good statistic and really good improvement for, for them. Fairly sure, yeah. So uh, they can enjoy the much quicker validation times now. Yeah, and I think we'll see more hackathon reports as they become available in future episodes. So um, that's always interesting to hear what the OpenBSD folks have come up in a silent, or maybe not so silent, but uh, 
snowy hut in the mountains. So yeah, the the uh, title of the the post is nobody can hear you screaming. So maybe there is you know <laughs> uh, there there they are not silent, but nobody hears that. You know, yeah yeah. These are the thankless things that most people or as users don't see what kind of effort went into this stuff. I mean, you mentioned that X509 is very horrible as a code, but someone has to do it and make it work. Yes, it's, it's, I, I'm really uh, full of, um, I'm, I'm really surprised that, that he decided to do that because I, I don't know how somebody sh- would force me to, to look into that code. I'm really, not sure is it possible <laughs> um but this is also interesting because this show that uh, the open source projects not only uh, works on the internet but they also gathering together to do cool stuff like you know going to elk lakes hut and hack together so yeah it's like hanging out with your friends to having a good time and having something great at the end uh, as a result that's also good so yeah, um, definitely um, uh, kudos to the OpenBSD folks in their hackathons and uh, the people will uh, see updates coming down the line when there's uh, progress ma- being made. All right, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we found a couple items as the year comes to a close. It, this gets difficult and difficult, um, but we have a couple things here. So the first one is that the FOSDEM 2020 BSD DevRoom schedule has been published. Uh, so let's look at this briefly. Uh, so Rodrigo Osorio is organizing that, uh, like in the last couple of years. And so uh, he's uh, in charge of the room for that day. Uh, this time it's on the Sunday, so um, don't miss this one. Uh, the foundation will also, ha- the FreeBSD Foundation will also have a table on the Saturday and Sunday. And um, there's also a one day FreeBSD hackathon on the Friday before FOSDEM starts. Um, for people who are interested, they can find more information on the freebsd.org website. Uh, but let's go through the schedule here. So the first one is a welcome to the BSD Dev Room by Rodrigo, followed by Orchestrating Jails with Nomad and Pot by Luca Pizzamiglio. Ah, I remember. Yeah, so he did uh, talk about this at the uh, EuroBSDCon Dev Summit this year. And he introduced uh, how he can create like uh, Docker or let's say Kubernetes-like environment with Nomad and Pot that has a lot of potential and gathered a couple uh, of interested uh, people in there. So I guess he made some more progress and that's the result of his uh, work here. I always look forward for any tools that really improves uh, Jail's uh, uh, configurations and managing because uh, the default tools are quite complicated and it's taking a while to, to learn them. Mm. Yeah, especially if you have multiple jails and you need to all juggle them and that as a, at a certain number it kind of gets you lose the oversight and have no idea, you know, is this in this jail or in that one or did I restart the wrong one or whatever. Yeah, maybe that helps us um orchestrating that a little bit better. So, uh, for now on my main desktop I'm still using my traditional uh, jail commands to, you know, just Still get feeling, but when I'm uh, doing some VPN or VPS uh, servers, then uh, VPS servers, uh, then um, I'm mostly using IO cache for that. Mm. Yeah, for new stuff, I also use IO cache and some of the um, the older jails. I mean, they've been set up this way and run for a while now, so um, they run with the classical command line tools that they are uh, available in the system. 
Uh, then well, we have OpenSMTBD in the clouds uh, and NetBSD, not just for toasters. That sounds interesting. Uh, uh, followed by Deb Goodkin's talk, uh, FreeBSD Around the World. So she's giving an update from the foundation side um, where we were in uh, 2019 by that time, uh, promoting FreeBSD and what kind of use cases we saw and what people are working on. So that's uh, exciting to see. Uh, then we have FreeBSD and LLVM support uh, by David Collier, I think that's how you pronounce it, and uh, gives us an update what is LLVM and uh, how it integrates into FreeBSD. Ah, the next sounds interesting. Break your BSD kernel. And uh, I think you mentioned earlier that uh, you know this this one, or at least that the name sounds interesting or familiar enough. Uh, so, uh, Maciej uh, Grochowski uh, sounds like a Polish name, uh, you know. Uh, I believe he did a presentation during the Euro, Euro BSDCon about uh, IFL and Kekov, um, how he fa- was fuzzing the NetBSD. Uh, kernel. Ah, yes, yeah. Now I remember his name. Yeah, yeah. That's that could be very well um, uh, him uh, doing a bit of uh, fuzzing work in the BSD kernel. Uh, then we have KDE on FreeBSD. So Adrian de Grot uh, has been uh, doing that work a long time now, and uh, in the uh, port system, keeping FreeBSD on uh, KDE on FreeBSD updated, and so he's reporting on what's uh, the newest uh, progress there. Uh, then they have a NetBSD audio talk about a userland perspective. Oh, interesting. Discussing the usage of NetBSD's audio API and third-party software. Oh, that's that sounds interesting. Uh, the second to last is X11 and Wayland, a tale of two implementations. Oh, oh, Raichu is back. Okay, that's good. Uh, he did a talk, I think, two years ago about Dtrace. And that was very popular. Uh, you mean the Dtrace on NetBSD or... Uh, was it NetBSD or he did some special f- uh, NetB- uh, D-Trace work? Um, I don't recall right now, but could be, yeah, that he did it on NetBSD. Uh, and the last talk is, oh, graphing FreeBSD disk utilization with Prometheus. Ah, writing a Prometheus GSTAT exporter. Oh, that will be interesting for the sysadmins to see, you know, which disk is doing most of the work. <laughs> yeah, it's something that, you know, you may use on your course of, about ZFS as well. Yes, so you, you can see, ah, although there are five disks in this pool, or how many there will, there will be, this one disk is doing most of the load, or this disk is very slow, so maybe this one is dying, or could be replaced with a faster one, so that uh, can all be uh, determined from GSTAT, for example. So BSD Defrom on FOSDEM looks very interesting. Uh, there are, I, I'm quite surprised, because there are many presentations from NetBSD, you don't see those days so many from them so it seems like the new release give him them something to to uh, share about to talk to about yeah that could be could be the thing that they say okay now we have a release we might as well um show to the people in the world what we can do with that and or what other things are capable in, in NetBSD. And I think Rodrigo also tries to balance the BSDs in that room so it's not just this one BSD every time. Uh so seems quite well balanced this time. So I'm looking forward to that. Definitely try to attend uh, the FOSDEM dev room or FOSDEM itself because it has not just BSD but also all the other open source projects are there uh, either with a table or their own talk or um, their own dev room 
and they also stream those events. You really can't make that, uh, so you can watch the recordings. And of course, later the the videos will be available. The FOSDEM folks are quite fast in uh, making them available after the conference. So BSD DevRoom is on February the second, right? Uh, yep, yeah, it is. So yes, please join the BSD DevRoom. Then we have a news item about an easy Minecraft server. Uh, on FreeBSD, so that's on the FreeBSD Foundation's website. So this is basically how you can quickly, but not too difficult, set up a uh, little uh, <laughs> server for maybe the kids or for the people that are still uh, doing the Minecraft thing. And it's fairly straightforward. It's just a couple of commands and a couple of steps. And before you know it, you have your own uh Minecraft server up and you battle the zombies or whatever <laughs> goes on in that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I believe uh, you, you kill zombies in Minecraft and try to build something, right? Maybe the building is more important than the killing, but uh, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I just saw a couple of things and I was like, okay. Uh, it's modern Lego, but yeah, it's fun. I, I see people enjoy that very much. So check out that how-to and um, build your own Minecraft server. Uh, then we have oh an interesting commit from the FreeBSD uh, list of commits. Uh, it's the Stats framework in the TCP stack. Oh, that's looking very uh, interesting. I believe uh, Netflix uh, did the original work for this. Uh, yeah, this uh, I think they sponsored. Yeah, they sponsored that one. And uh, so, what's this about? Uh, it basically. Uh, allows more insight into what the TCP stack is doing. So from the commit message, uh, this makes it possible to retrieve per-connection statistical information, such as the retrieve window size, the RTT, the round-trip time, or the good good put? Good, good put? Well, I'm well. not sure what that is. Something in TCP. <laughs> uh, using a newly added TCP underscore stats, get sock option option, Yep, and extract them using the stats vault stat fetch API. So they uh, tell us to see the net TCP RTT port for an example consumer of this API. So you need that port installed to uh, look into it. And uh, compared to this existing TCP info system, the main differences are that this mechanism is easy to extend without breaking the ABI, which is always good to uh, not do, and provide statistical information instead of raw snapshots of values at a given point in time. And stats is more generic and can be used in both userland and the kernel. Oh, cool. So it's not just limited to the TCP stack. Yeah, so I guess we'll see more about this uh, work in maybe a future uh, BSD conference when they talk about this. And so, yeah, this was sponsored by uh, Clara and uh, Netflix. Oh, and then we have a picture. We found this... Sometimes we've found... Weird stuff, but also interesting stuff on Twitter. So here's a tweet from uh, Edwin Kramer uh, posting, colleague of mine asked the other day if I could possibly remember how I set up a FreeBSD server back in 2008. Wow, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we're getting old. Yeah. So <laughs> they, uh, he writes, I took a look at the box and found this. That's just over 11 years shoveling IP packets left, right, and center. Wow. He posted a picture, just an uptime screenshot, and it has like 4,017 days. That's very interesting, but also quite scary, you know, running FreeBSD uh, 7.0 uh, without updates for such a long time. That's... Yeah. Uh, I, I, always, <laughs> I always feel, you know, uh, divided uh, when I see such picture because 
uh, seeing so many days running uh, on uh, the box running for so many days, it's it's very exciting and it's you know amazing achievement. Another thing that then there is a small security guy inside me and say, what about the updates? You know, yeah. that's. Uh, Yeah, is this box really not connected to the internet? Or <laughs> he says that it's shopping IP packages left and right. So I, I hope it's a private uh, IPs. Yeah, just in the local network. Not that there are also exploits there, but yeah, hopefully they are fine in this way. And uh, yeah, luckily that uh, BSD can do or FreeBSD can do this uptime, and uh, even the load on this box is not very <laughs> very high. So that should be fairly fairly good. The next item is, oh, sysget. Have you heard about this? No, I never heard about that. It's new for me as well. So they describe it as a front end for every package manager. Wow, interesting. Yeah, this is on GitHub. And so uh, there's a huge list of supported package managers. So it's basically uh, a bridge that lets you use one syntax to every package manager on every Unix-based operating system. Wow, so you finally have one tool and you have to remember only one syntax to, to one uh, tool to install on every uh, box you want, um, some ports or, or tools, that's applications. It seems like, and that's what they write also as a description, you probably all know the problem when you are on a new distro and don't know anything about the package manager. With sysget, you just need to remember one syntax for every package manager. And so you just install sysget. Hopefully you can do that on this new distro. <laughs> uh, but once you have that, you can do all the things for apt, dnf, yum, zipper, package, uh NPM, PIP3, and all the others, Mac ports as well. Uh, and the command examples here. So it's sysget, a bit more typing, but that's where I, why we have tab uh, keys and <laughs> tab completion. Uh, sysget search, and then a search query. Sysget install, the package name. Or to remove a package, it's sysget remove, so that's fairly uh, easy to understand. It's very similar to the package that you know from FreeBSD, so... yeah. <laughs> I'm sticking with package for shorter typing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the idea is good. And uh, once you hop between different systems, you just uh, don't have to remember, ah, is this pip now or what am I using here? So just use uh, sysget. Yeah, this might be very convenient. I, I'm just looking at the uh, website and, you know, uh, they support only two languages, English and uh, English and German. Are you the author of this uh, tool? No, I, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe people want to contribute languages so they can uh, send pull requests or get in touch. And uh, yeah, maybe this is becoming uh, more widespread adoption. Does it also support like um, package source? I didn't see that in the list. I didn't see that as well, to be honest. Yeah, because that will that has a huge uh, user base. And so I guess they want to uh, cater to those as well. So if you're looking for a small project for a weekend, then maybe you want to look into this get tool and add support for the package source. Con this package source. So that's a good start, and uh, a lot of people will be happy to use it then, maybe. Uh, and our last item, that's more for the for the holiday types that don't want to work on anything. Uh, we found a website called Play on BSD, and they have a cross BSD shopping guide. Yes, this is a very uh, interesting uh, project which trying to uh, 
gather all the games that you can run on the uh, free B- on the BSD in general. Uh, I believe it's mostly uh, done by uh, guys from uh, OpenBSD, uh, although you many of the games that you will see on this list you also can run um, on the FreeBSD, especially the games that are uh, using the port slash engine, uh, which is called FNIFI, or however you, you spell it. I think Alan pronounced it FNAFI. FNAFI? Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. It's, it's not very easy. <laughs> I will ensure you that it should work. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, what else do we need? <laughs> uh, because I, I, I ported it to the FreeBSD, so, but it was ported from OpenBSD, uh, so, yeah. Oh, good. Try to use it. And if, if you run into some uh, troubles, just, just send me an email. Or ah, yes, then everyone knows now where to go to. <laughs> I believe uh, it was a while ago, but I believe like eight or nine months ago, you you cover uh, uh, my, my blog post when I was uh, talking about uh, porting this this tool. Oh yes, yeah, could very well be. We will be. We're always happy to uh, report from your uh, writings in your blog. So uh, could very well be that we covered this, and so um, they have here a list of all the uh, the games that are working. And some of them, like 60 games, are currently on sale on uh, GOG.com. So you can maybe get a little discount for your favorite game that you used to play or always wanted to finish and never had the time, and now you have. So there's a couple of cool uh, titles there that I remember. Uh, No time to play them, but uh, all the memories are coming back just browsing through this list. Uh, I can really recommend you the uh, Stradivali. It's very interesting game. Uh, did you play into uh, in it? Uh, never heard about it. What does it? Oh, really? This is a game uh, uh, with um, a story that you are a, a software developer and you uh, don't want to work with uh, computers anymore. So you go <laughs> to farm and start, you know, uh, doing carrots and cows and so on. So it's it's pre- pretty pretty funny. <laughs> That's that's what most people say. Like if they have a bad day in IT, I'm like I'm going into gardening or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So check that out if you have some time over the holidays for playing a couple games under the BSDs because you can. It's working now thanks to the porting efforts and the people who wrote the software. Yes, uh, that, to be honest, the OpenBSD guy puts uh, much more effort than than me to to make it working. I'm only ported that so. Uh, I believe that nickname was THRF. Uh, so this is the guy who could write the tool. Yeah, so we're all thankful for the people who are doing the ports work because that makes uh, it possible to play these uh, or use the software under the BSDs. All right, it's time for the feedback and questions this time. Uh, We're running a bit low at the end of the year with feedback and questions, so you should always send us more so we can fill this episode part. Uh, It's feedback at bsdnow.tv, and that could contain uh, all the show ideas, topics, comments that you have, um, and uh, maybe blog posts that you found about BSDs that are interesting that we missed. So uh, send all to this uh, address. And uh, people have sent, uh, we have two this time. Uh, so the first one is Pat. And Pat is asking about the proper disk drive type for ZFS. So Pat writes, uh, Hi, Alan and Benedict. In this case, Marius and Benedict. 
Uh, I plan to set up a home server shortly, powered by FreeBSD and ZFS, of course. And I was wondering if you had any advice when it comes to hard drives. Are consumer-grade hard drives okay for 24-7 use, or are enterprise-level drives a must from your own use cases? Also, do you mind sharing your opinions on whether hard drives should be left spinning versus allowing them to spin while not in use? From my point of view, I'm, I'm using... Um HP microserver with four disks, and I'm basically um, doing only like um, backupping stuff or, you know, uh, putting them some photos, videos or whatever, uh, like a, basically like a NAS. And uh, to be honest, I, when I'm using ZFS, I just decided to buy the cheapest possible disk on the market. And uh, I'm running it 20 more for 24 uh, 7. But I, uh, you know, when I'm sleeping, I'm not using it. Uh, so it's just running all the time, but uh, the, the load isn't very big on it. And I configured it like three years or four years ago and everything works. I, I never even um, change uh, one disk on it. So so it's pretty nice. I, it's for this, so I configured it in right that one. And yeah, that's basically... It's working. Uh, I can recommend you a, a Backblaze uh, company, which is posting a very interesting uh, statistic about uh, their disk usage. What is percentage of disk that, uh, that uh, are broken or get broken during the time? So if you want to see some statistics, real numbers, then go to Backblaze. They, they, I think they're doing this quarterly. So uh, just look into the newest uh, statistic from, from them. So ZFS is definitely a good thing for um, because it doesn't have to work on the enterprise level drives it, it does definitely but with all the checks and uh extra security things it does to make sure that your drive and your hard uh safe data will be consistent enough it can also run on um like mario said uh, you can buy cheap drives and run with them for for many years without problems because zfs is doing all the checking and the checksumming making sure that all your files will be consistent as soon as you save it on zfs yeah, and I, I I believe that you will if it's uh, for home usage. Uh, I believe you will not have such workload that you will be uh, using this uh, enterprise uh, disk enough to to get the cost of it. And so, what about the spinning up and uh, putting the drive to sleep for a while, or uh, that feature? Uh, to be honest, I never use that feature. So yeah, they are just spinning around. So. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, people like recommended, oh, yes, you need to park the heads properly and, you know, uh, never shut down the machine because the spin down and spin up will like shock the drive and it gets unstable and uh, gets older quicklier. And I never thought this would be, I mean, maybe in the past, but uh, even hard drives have evolved and there's new technology in there that made it a bit more resilient to these kind of things. I remember the presentation from... Um sound microsystem when there was a guy who was screaming at the disc and you know it was showing how the disc getting slower but there was like i don't i don't know like 80 disc or something like this so it was a bigger rate yeah <laughs> yeah it was quite big right so uh, if you are if you will use like four or six disc you should be fine with normal uh, consu uh, consumer disc in my opinion and if you have to shut down your your NAS for for the night, maybe, and just wake it up every day, um, 
I mean, I don't think that all the discs will be damaged. If if maybe one disc dies, you have enough redundancy if you build it in like a, a RAID Z1 or RAID Z or um, RAID 10, then there's enough redundancy. If, just, if you are that unlucky that maybe one disc dies, then you can replace that and still have your files back. Um, so I'm not uh, particularly worried about if you really have to spin up and down the drives all the time that they will get uh, older or that the data on the files will not be read anymore. ZFS is there to help you. And uh, if you back up that pool to a separate system, then you should be fine restoring those files. Hope that answers your question. So go cheap uh, if you don't have the money or you don't necessarily have to um, spend the money for enterprise stuff. Uh, ZFS will run just fine. Okay, the next uh, question uh, came from Brad about uh, a ZFS Rosetta Stone of sorts. Brad writes, Hello, Benedict, Marius, I replace Alan here, and JT, our producer. Uh, I'm rereading Alan and Michael W. Lucas's ZFS books to refamiliarize myself before delving into the Jails book. Ah, good endeavor. Uh, even after all of these years, there's so much information. The books are still like drinking from a fire hose, even after all these years. Yeah, it's I <laughs> keep them close. You can revisit them a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> so um, f uh, for Brad here, the problem in ZFS is threefold. First, uh, he generally does a tiny subset of ZFS commands only. Yeah. So when I need to do something on that list, I have to search. Second, ZFS can be like one of those matryoshka nesting dolls. Uh, commands can be so similar, for instance, ZFS list and zpool list, yet have different outputs. This ZFS is so darn reliable that there are many things that I don't do for years. Last week, I did my first drive replacement in years. I, I, I doubt that uh, you had an enterprise disk, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's connecting to the previous question. <laughs> so he's compiling notes uh, as he encounters things in ZFS, but would like to see uh, any kind of Rosetta Stone document, which has many of the more common tasks and information in a short form document. Is there any such thing out there? From my perspective, I, I didn't see anything like that. There is a lot of blog posts about ZFS and so on. Uh, so if you are uh, willing to do such thing, you really should do. But uh, to be honest, I, I really uh, feel your problem because for me, uh, I always mess up if the F or DU is showing compressed data or uncompressed data, uh, the, the size of the data. So uh, for me, the best practice was to, to put all of this into the blog that I can, uh, you know, help myself and maybe authors to, you know, find those stuff. So maybe a blog is also a good uh, idea for you or just put, you know, all the notes you have or on some GitHub or whatever. And, you know, there are there will be people who, who will be very uh, happy that they, that they find such thing. Oh, yes, yeah. And you can see, ah, I, I found this one command output like 50 times and then, ah, yes, it must be the correct one and not just this one single source you kind of don't trust. But the more people blog about this or the more information you find, the more easier it is to find and uh, making sure that these commands are still the ones that are doing the work. Some tools also change the output. For example, the Zippo list uh, recently get an additional column with the size of the uh, checkpoint. So, you know, you have to be careful always to, to check that. And, you know, if you will push such a document and to the GitHub or you start blogging about it, I, 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 I believe that Alan and Benedict will present it on BSD now, you know? <laughs> 
Oh, yes, yeah. Definitely, or maybe you search for ZFS cheat sheet, for example. Be careful with some of the older commands, maybe. Uh, but yeah, if you don't have one, uh, don't find one, then start your own and maybe put it on GitHub so people can contribute to that. And then over time, we have something uh, that everyone can use. And maybe you give that to the ZFS people and they can share it on ZFS.org maybe or openzfs.org nowadays. But yeah, maybe other people are struggling with the same things. So I what I mostly use is uh, ZFS list-o space and um, show me the compression factor. And the other commands are basically, oh, create a data set that's just so muscle memory now. It's just normal. I don't have to look that up anymore. But if it's some obscure option in like ZFS send maybe that I don't do every day, I definitely need to consult the man page, of course, or the books. Uh, that's why they are out there. Yes, you you always should look into the man page for because you know so there are some options that will maybe change or or uh, they may disappear from some reason. Or if I'm not sure about what the result might be, I many of the ZFS commands have these uh, dry run outputs where you can provide dash n will uh, simulate what ZFS will do without doing it. Uh, and so you can make sure, ah, this is really the destroy command that I wanted to run. And this is how many data sets maybe or um, snapshots are affected by that. Oh, that, that, that is so, so useful, you know, especially uh, for uh, adding additional uh, drivers to, to the pool, you know. Uh, messing up this command may be problematic for you in the future. Yeah, yeah. we're all waiting for the uh, device removal feature to be available. I I believe the new ZFS, uh, it has already, right? Oh, yeah, I think uh, there should be something in there. Um, even more reason to uh, get this uh, in 2020, hopefully. So, yeah, but definitely uh, find something that is, or start your own little Rosetta Stone for, ah, how do I display the disk size? Or how do I display the pool information? So uh, small things like that. And over time it grows, and then uh, you have your own little uh, reference. Yes, this is always something that is very surprising, was very surprising for me, because uh, before I started blogging, it was like, oh, this is so obvious. Everybody knows that, right? No, nobody <laughs> has that problem, no. you know? And uh, no, th this this isn't how the uh, world works, really. If you have this problem, probably a lot of people have the same problem like you. Mm. Oh, yes, yeah. And see, you get covered on uh, on this show, for <laughs> if not only that. And uh, you never know what people come by and, and read your blog. And I'm like very uh, thankful that you provided enough information to get them going. All right, uh, that's the questions that we have for this uh, episode. So uh, thanks uh, for uh, listening to this episode. Uh, happy holidays, of course. And uh, big thanks to Marius for helping out in this episode. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, maybe we'll do another thing like this if people uh, respond to that. So Alan get, can get a little bit more holidays. Or you do one episode with Alan. That could also be interesting. Uh, you want some holidays, I see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I deserve a break. Um, but next time, Alan will be back. And uh, so you never know. Uh, he he was replaced in this one episode. Uh, <laughs> Maybe he will even not notice that, you know. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> I can ask him, hey, Alan, where were you last week? Uh, <laughs> or, or you can say, uh, Alan, that was a very good show. You, you did a very good job this time. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, that I will definitely do, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks again for uh, helping out here. And, uh, oh, where where can people find you on the internet uh, on, beside your blog? 
so I'm blogging uh, and I'm also having a Twitter account. It's pretty active. So uh, twitter.com uh, Oshogbo, S-H-O-G-B-O uh, V-X. So it's very hard. But if you Google Marius Zaborski, you should find me. Okay, yeah. So um, having been on the show, uh, like uh, previous people that we interviewed, they always, or many of them, I saw that their uh, follower accounts were exploding or increasing at least. So that's probably what happens to you. And uh, yeah, we close this episode. Again, happy holidays. Happy holidays, guys. And see you next week. 